How resilient is your supply chain? Move from traditional services to supply chain as a service solutions, architect and executed by supply chain experts. Design your products with lifecycle visibility of components and bombs to avoid disruptions. Forecast to meet demand with robust planning and analytics tools. The partnership and infrastructure to empower global scale, efficiencies, and financial advantages. Call your Avnet expert. Avnet.com slash S-C-A-A-S dash E-M-E-A. On ktalk.co.za. On the app. On DSTV channel 885. And across the city on 567 AM. Join the conversation. This is Cape Talk. This is Cape Talk. 29 minutes to 10 o'clock. It is Friday. It is now time for the Naked Scientist. Dr. Chris Smith, how are you doing this morning? I'm very good and I've even done my homework. Not only am I early for class, Lester, I've done my homework. I can tell you I have been unable to find any evidence linking rhoticism, inability to pronounce R's, with any kind of genetic cause directly. But of course, as one person has pointed out to me, there are some indirect causes in the sense Mm -hmm. that if you have an inherited tendency towards, for instance, deafness, you may not be able to hear what you're saying or what other people are saying to you so well, so it may be harder to learn a language and therefore pronounce everything perfectly the first time. So some neurological conditions can arise through that, that kind of um, genetic basis, but on the whole there, is, there isn't a genetic cause for our inability to pronounce certain words. We are on the line with the good kids from Berkeley Primary School. You enjoyed it so much last time, Chris, that we decided to make this a monthly thing. I hope that Peter and Drake and the good kids at Berkeley Primary can hear me. Can you hear us, guys? Yes, we can. Good morning. Say good morning, grade sevens. Good morning. Excellent. Lovely. Uh, Peter and whoever is first in line can come to the mic. And we can All right. Talk and okay, we've got uh, Jaden. He's coming to the the mic now. Hello, Jaden. How are you? I'm fine, thanks. And yourself? Very good. How old? What grade? Oh, uh, I'm in grade seven, and I'm 13 years old. Excellent. That great age. You are speaking to Dr. Chris Smith, the Naked Scientist. Fire away. Uh, good morning. My name is Jaden. I'm 13 years old, and my question is: Are we able to recreate extinct animal species? And if so, how? Oh, hi, Jaden. The answer is that we can and we can't. It depends on what you're talking about. For very simple life, such as microorganisms and viruses, people are able to find examples of extinct types of those things. And usually they're frozen in permafrost and it has been possible to bring them back. It's also been possible to bring back extinct plants where bits of those things have been frozen in ice and it's been possible to to reanimate them. But those, in most cases, are very simple examples or very simple organisms. When you're talking about whole animals, it gets a lot more difficult. People have read the genetic codes of a number of extinct animals now, and I actually was very privileged to interview on The Naked Scientist, George Church, who's a geneticist at Harvard University. We spoke a couple of years ago, and we discussed a project he did to read the genetic code of woolly mammoths. They did an expedition in Siberia where they tracked down the frozen remains of of dead mammoths that had been locked in the permafrost for thousands of years, and they were able to get from the mammoth tissue the genetic sequence. But the problem is, it's very degraded 
because it's been out there in the cold and exposed to the environment for thousands of years, in the same way that if you put anything outside for thousands of years, it slowly falls apart, the genetic code also falls apart. And as a result of that, it's very difficult to piece it back together meaningfully. They've done that, but then you've got the problem, well, even though you've got the genetic code, how do you get it back inside a mammoth cell to start running and making more mammoths? One possibility might be to mix the genetics of a mammoth with the genetics of an animal that is still existing today, and that's a very close relative of the mammoth, the elephant, of course. And it might be possible to use elephant cells to host mammoth DNA, and because they're so similar, one would quite happily accept and operate the following the instructions of the other. And there are projects ongoing at the moment to explore this. And it's not just a Frankenstein show, it's not just about doing freaky science. There's a really important purpose to all of this, which is apart from telling us a lot about genetics and how we can do this better, it means that in the future we've got a way of safeguarding creatures that through either environmental change, the activities of man, or other for other reasons, perhaps disease or other kind of catastrophes, those animals have been lost, but we do have vestiges of them from which we could perhaps recreate a species. So people think this is a high priority for conservation as well as scientific interest. Chris, if I may ask, there's the lesson from the movie Jurassic Park, uh, a question of whether or not we could, but also whether we should. What a brilliant uh, point, and I should have raised that, shouldn't I? Because Michael Crichton, who actually wrote Jurassic Park, he's unfortunately no longer with us now, but uh, had an amazing insight with that book, and it, it captured everyone's imagination. But it is unfortunately flawed, because although we can see uh, evidence of insects preserved inside amber, and insects that would have been around perhaps at the time when dinosaurs were roaming the earth, again, the same processes that preserve the insect in amber and have preserved the mammoth in the permafrost do not preserve the genetic information in there at all well. And so any dinosaur DNA that might have been inside a mosquito, assuming a mosquito could drill through the incredibly thick skin of a dinosaur, which it, which it would have potentially struggled to do, but that DNA would be incredibly degraded and very, very hard for us to extract much information from. Although researchers are trying, and I've also been very fortunate to, to speak in, in recent years to Eske Villaslav, who is, I think, the current Guinness Book world record holder for reading the oldest genetic information in the world. And he sequenced a, a horse found in Spain from nearly three quarters of a million years ago. So we know we can go back about three quarters of a million years and get genetic information out. But going back much further than that, very, very tricky. Jurassic Park was talking about dinosaurs that were roaming the Earth more than 75 million years ago. So we've got a long way to go yet before we can, we can get back to the time when, when we're reading DNA that old. Teacher Peter Ann, who's next? All right, so we've got Aidan now. Good morning. Hello, Aidan, how are you? I'm fine, thank you. And yourself? Very good. Chris is listening. My, my name is Aiden. I'm proud of all, and my question is Is the universe truly infinite? Oh, hi, Aidan. Uh, good morning. The answer is that there are bits of the universe we can't see because the universe is growing and as it gets older, it grows even faster. It's rather like a teenage growth spurt, but one that's going on and on and on. The universe is actually a teenager because it's 13.8 billion years old and as it gets older, the rate of growth continues to to ex to ex 
to increase. And it's actually growing faster than the light can come from where it's growing into now. So as a result, there are bits of the universe that are invisible to us. So were you to try and travel to them, the universe would be expanding away from you faster than you could catch up with it, even if you could go at the speed of light. So there are bits of the universe that we can't see, and therefore you could argue it does yeah go on forever because by the time you got to where it is now it would have expanded a lot more into the distance ahead of you friday is our time with the naked scientists unfortunately not taking your calls and messages this morning because we have the good kids from Bergfleet primary school every month we invite a school to come on air and ask the questions to dr chris smithy science and natural history questions if you want to nominate a school let us know on 0725671567. But who's up next, Peter? We've got Haley next. Good morning. Morning, Haley. Um, good morning. My name is Haley. I'm 13 years old. And my question is Could we one day replace all of the tissues in the human body through engineering? Oh, hello, Haley. Well, we're trying now, and it's becoming actually quite a successful field. People are, are being able to grow different tissues and different cell types in the dish. And in fact, uh, in the last week or so, a, a new company opened just down the road from me who are providing samples of different cell types that you can just go and buy them off the shelf. And the idea is that in the long run, what we'll be able to do is to grow new bits of the body in a dish and then put them into the body to replace bits that have worn out. And it's early days at the moment, but certainly we we can do that for some things at the moment. And the other thing that's showing enormous promise is that people are doing with tissues and cells what we do with plastic for 3D printing at the moment. So they're turning 3D printers into tissue printers. And the idea is that you can lay down all the cells in just the right place with a surrounding jelly-like matrix to hold them in position and support them, and you can actually print new organs. And in the long run, I think that's what's going to happen. We'll be printing things like kidneys and livers and your new pancreas if you need one. We could lay down new patches of skin, so if you get a bad wound or a burn or something, you could replace a patch of skin. That's coming in the, in the long term, and scientists are making enormous progress at the moment towards doing this. It's a long way to go, though, because lots of the tissues in the body, there are hundreds of different cell types in a human body, and making them all work the right way and tolerate the sorts of conditions we need to do this is really hard. But we're getting there, and I would say watch this space, because you know, in the coming years, then at the pace at which this is developing, I think we're going to see some really big strides forward. Mm. Um, Chris... We experienced this the last time uh, when we had the kids from, I think it was Gaia Waldorf, on between the ages of, I would say, between 11, 12, 13, plenty of space-related questions, questions about uh, the galaxy and the universe, Big Bang Theory. Uh, why do you think it is that it, that it grips young people at, at that particular age, thinking about the, the wonders of space? Well, I remember being uh, about 10 or 11, and in awe of, I loved dinosaurs, volcanoes, uh, space, space rockets. And it's things that st stretch our imagination and en enable us to close our eyes and take ourselves on the most amazing journey in our imagination. And I think, you know, you're at your most imaginative when you're at the beginning of your life and all options are open to you and you can dream and no one can tell you no. 
And I think that's why things that make a big impact on us, that look big, that do amazing things, make lots of noise or are really impressive, tend to capture our imaginations. And, and I was no different. I remember being absolutely in awe watching space rockets going up into space, watching volcanoes explode and documentaries with David Attenborough on them telling me what dinosaurs would have looked like um, 100 million years ago. Peter Ann, who's next in line there for the, from the kids from Berkeley Primary School? Okay, so we've got Jehan now. Good morning. Good morning, Jehan. Thank you so much for answering all of our questions. My next question is, is science ever able to allow us to gain control over diseases such as Alzheimer's and autism? Oh, hi, Jehan. Well, we're working on it. And the answer is that at the end of the day, just like the, the solution to the coronavirus pandemic will be a scientific one and is because the vaccines that are thankfully turning the tables on this have come from a laboratory, so will the solutions to many of the diseases that we are currently grappling with. And you highlight a really important one. Alzheimer's disease is a cause or a form of what we call senile dementia. It is an age-related problem where the brain stops working as well as it did when we were younger, and as a result, it robs people of their personality, their memory, and their ability to look after themselves. And as such, given that the whole population of the planet is increasing, but the age, on average, of the population of the planet is increasing, in other words, there are increasingly more older people with every day that passes that means diseases like this become more of a problem and so it's actually a big scientific priority to try to solve them and at the moment we're working on understanding why people get these diseases because if you can understand why the disease happens you can work out what makes it happen in what order and you can then see how you might be able to intervene to stop it happening so in other words, it's called studying the mechanism of a disease and it's a bit like understanding the mechanism that makes a clock tick. If a clock breaks but you understand how all the cogs work, you can work out which cog is broken to make the clock tick again and not break the next time. And so scientists begin by starting with the observation there's a problem and then they work out how that happened and then once they've worked out how it happens they work out how to stop it happening. And that's what we're doing at the moment. We're working out the mechanism of how diseases like Alzheimer's disease happen so that we can then work out where along that path to intervene with different drugs or different treatments. And someone's already asked about cells and printing new tissues or making new organs and things. We can work out how we can use those sorts of techniques to replace the parts of the body that may be working less well as we've got old to give us a better quality of life into older age. We've asked Berkeley Primary School to, to send us a couple of voice notes so that we can get as many kids asking their questions as possible. So I think this is a message that was sent through from Peter Ann by Shannon. Let's have a listen. Good morning. My name is Shannon. I'm 13 years old. My question is, how does string theory produce everything in our universe? I don't know what string theory is exactly, Chris. Well, it's a theory. And what we don't understand about uh, the, the universe at the moment is most of it. And we have some ideas as to how things work, but we have no idea really about how many of the, the different elements of, of the building blocks of the universe and how the different aspects of how they all work together are interrelated. And one theory is this idea about string theory, but it is just a theory because the problem is that it, we, what we have to do is start with an observation, which is we see how systems work, the universe, gravity and so on, and then we say, okay, given that observation, let's come up with some ideas or suggestions as to how this could work. 
And that gives you a theory and a hypothesis. And then you say, how do I test whether this is true or not? And then you do experiments to test whether or not what you think is going on is going on. And if you then discover that there's something that does work, you can say, well, that gives me confidence that my theory works uh, or it gives you reason to doubt your theory and then you change what you think is going on and test it again and so science is not so much about answers it's about asking a sequence of questions that slowly improve our knowledge base and there, there are lots of theories about how the universe works but not all of them are right and as one physicist said to me you've got to be really very cautious when you when you're using maths and things because you can prove that naught equals one and one equals minus one if you want to on paper doesn't mean it really happens so it's all about coming up with ideas that might explain some aspects of how the world and the universe around us work and then testing them and this is one of them we go live now back to Berkeley Primary School. Who's up next, Peter? So we've got uh, Ibrahim. Good morning. Hello, Ibrahim. How are you? I'm How old are you? I'm 13 years old. 13 years old as well. What's your question? My question is, why have humans evolved to be taller over the last 300 years? Hi, Ibrahim. You're right. Humans have have been getting as a as a race across the world, the human race. We have, on average, got bigger, but we weren't always small, because if you look uh, in in fact in fact if you go to some of the amazing anatomical specimens that are in South Africa as as one of the world's richest collections of the lineage of human evolution you can find specimens that showed that our ancestors, some of them, were absolutely huge, giants. They would have made some of these basketball players that, that are tall by today's standards look like they were just average. So we went through periods when we were very small. Our, our earliest ancestors, who were wandering around across Africa, people like the, the Australopithecines, for example, were pretty small. But as they evolved they got bigger. And by the time about, you know, half a, half, about 500,000, 300,000 years ago, there were these giant people. And then they shrank again. The reason we shrink and in, in expand in this way, there's a number of, of explanations and theories for this. One is that if you have got ample amounts of food and a really good environment to live in, then you can afford to put loads of energy into getting really big. If, on the other hand, you've got a horrible environment to live in, you don't know where your next meal is coming from, then you don't waste energy becoming really big. You may potentially shrink. Why might shrinking help? Because if it's freezing cold and there's loads of wind blowing, you want the smallest surface area to volume ratio you can get so you can stay as warm as possible and be rugged. So as a result, people will have responded to what the environment was doing. Also, if the environment around them was that everything was getting huge then that means your predators are getting huge as well. So how do you combat a really big thing that wants to eat you? Well, you get bigger so that you can fight it off. So there would have been this sort of boom and bust process going on over thousands of years, making us sometimes bigger, sometimes smaller, and a whole range of factors doing that. And then in the more modern era, things have changed again. What have we got at our disposal now? Well, we've got better living conditions. We've got better food. And because we've got better living conditions, better food and fewer diseases, on average, people reach what's called their genetic potential. Because the reason we're the height we are is written into the DNA that we inherit from our parents, which is why children are roughly the same height as their parents, as long as both have been 
well fed because what the body does is it diverts as much energy as possible into making you as big as you possibly can be but only during a narrow period when we're growing up and if you miss that window by the time you're about 15 or 16 years old if even if you're well fed after that if you haven't grown enough by that stage you never reach your your true genetic potential so as more people eat well have fewer diseases and live well on average across the world uh, that means that they reach their genetic potential height and that's why on average populations are getting bigger as time goes on you are listening to the naked scientist dr chris smith here on the morning review once a month we have a kid show we feature school in the greater cape town area today we have the good kids from berkeley primary school in the southern suburbs if you'd like to nominate a school to be part of a kid show oh seven two five six seven one five six seven drop us a message peter ann who do we have next? What inquiring mind would like to ask Dr. Chris Smith a question? All right, so we've got Adam is next. Good morning. Morning, Adam. My name is Adam. I'm 12 years old, and my question is, we have been talking a lot about COVID-19 at school. Can you explain in science how do viruses mutate, and what does this mean for vaccines? Hi, Adam. The first COVID question of the week. Brilliant. And it's a good one. And the answer to this is that viruses, just like we, have uh, genetic information, have genetic information inside them. But unlike us, viruses are tiny. Uh, a virus particle is less than a tenth of the size of a bacterium, which is a, a fraction of the size of a human cell. So viruses are nothing more than just a bag of infected, infectious genetic material. And when a virus infects one of our cells, the genetic instructions inside it hijack the cell that it's got inside of and they take it over and turn it into a virus factory. And they force the cell to make hundreds or in some cases thousands of new virus particles inside the cell and not do anything else. And those virus particles then come out of the cell and they infect surrounding cells, such as in your nose and throat, for example, which is why you get a sore throat when you get the flu. And they also leave the body and they infect other people. But when they're making viruses at such a ferociously fast rate, the genetic information of the virus sometimes gets spelled wrong. So it's a bit like if you're in the classroom and uh, the teacher says, right, copy this down off the board and you're given an hour to do it. You've got plenty of time to copy all the letters down and check you've spelled all the words correctly and you've got all the commas and full stops in the right place. So... There's no excuse for not getting it right. But if the teacher said, right, I'm only going to give you five minutes to do this. You've got to do it really quickly. And so what would normally take you an hour you're doing in five minutes? You might make loads of spelling mistakes. You wouldn't have time to check things properly. And it's a bit like that with viruses. They're, they're up against the clock because the immune system is trying to get rid of them. So they grow inside cells incredibly fast. And as they do so, they make genetic spelling mistakes because they're going so quickly they don't have time to check their work properly and as a result of that the baby viruses that are splurging out from the infected cells many of them in many cases especially in the case of diseases like HIV, flu, norovirus that causes upset tummies and also coronavirus to an extent contain genetic spelling mistakes and those genetic spelling mistakes may damage the ability of the virus to grow it might not be very good 
when it goes into another cell, it might, because it's got loads of these genetic changes in it, it might not work properly. On the other hand, some of those genetic changes might, by chance, be really helpful, and they might give the virus a new ability. So when that virus infects a cell, instead of growing only slowly like its um, other viral colleagues do, it might have an advantage, and that grows really fast and makes loads and loads of viruses with those genetic spelling mistakes in, which are helpful, and so that makes the virus population then move towards having that particular genetic makeup. And that's the process of virus evolution, and you'll get the viruses becoming better at spreading among us and, and their hosts, and at the same time we will respond by becoming better at fighting off the viruses. So you have this sort of what we call equilibrium of uh, viral spread around the world, and that's the that's the equilibrium that exists between all things that catch viruses and viruses that try and infect things. Peter, and I want to put you on the spot, but I'll give you a time to think. Um, I want, as a teacher, to 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 ask Dr. Chris Smith a question. But before we do that, who do you have next in line? Okay, so we have got uh, Jaden. He's back for his second question. Excellent. Hi again, Jaden. Hi. Um, my second question is: Why are black holes important to science? Hi, Jaden. Well, the answer is that we only in, in the last couple of years have been able to see them because you may remember a couple of years ago, scientists made headlines when they published the first picture of what's called the event horizon of a black hole. They photographed a nearby, relatively nearby black hole and also a picture of the black hole at the centre of our galaxy, the supermassive black hole. And they were able to, to show the shape of the black hole in space. Until relatively recent decades, we didn't even know these things could exist. But just as we were saying earlier, where you start with an observation, you start with a theory, and then you set up to, to test that hypothesis and work out whether or not it might be true. Scientists were able to theorise that this sort of thing existed and how the black hole might behave. And then they went out, tested it and observed it. And in recent years, photographed it for the first time. So it matters because when we're trying to understand how the universe works and the processes by which there's an evolution of the structure, the fabric, the makeup of the universe and what its ultimate fate might be, we have to work out, just as I was saying earlier when we were discussing the mechanisms of disease and how we understand how all the cogs contribute to the clockwork in a, keeping a clock ticking, we need to understand the cogs that are the clockwork of the ticking of the universe. And black holes are an important part of the physics of the universe. So understanding how they're formed, what they do, what their role is, is absolutely critical to our big picture of the workings of our universe. Peter, and I, I promised, I said that uh, we can't ignore the teachers with some of the big questions also about science and natural history. I'll, I'll even let you have the last word today. What's, what's your question? To oh, Dr. my goodness. <laughs> well, firstly, um, everybody's sitting here in absolute silence and complete awe with regards to the human um, Google search engine that's, that's uh, spewing out all these answers. So, um, yeah, we, we are definitely <laughs> absolutely in awe with what's, what's come out and the way that you've answered the question. So thank you so much. Um, we've just got one last question, and it is, uh, what is consciousness and will we ever be able to understand it? <laughs> you saved the really hard one for last. <laughs> um, <laughs> Carl Lashley, who was a famous uh, sort of cerebral anatomy or brain anatomist, 
He described this famously as the hard problem and said it was the graveyard of many good neuroscientists, the consciousness problem. And, and he indeed spent many years, and as have many neuroscientists, trying to understand it. We don't know what consciousness is. When I've, throughout this programme, used the reference of understanding all the cogs that turn to make the mechanism of a clock that makes a clock tick, we're very good at unpicking the different bits of the brain and effectively seeing the cogs that are the, 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 the mechanism of your brain. We can see the nerve cells, we can see how they're connected to each other, we can watch them talking to each other with amazing brain scanners in real time and we can give people jobs to do inside brain scanners and work out what bit of the brain is doing what and how the different brain networks turn on, turn off and pass information among themselves. But how on earth that assemblage of... 100 billion nerve cells that each of them are connected to about a thousand to five thousand other nerve cells how on earth that ultimately produces this experience that we call consciousness and the other weird thing about it is that i'm staring at a microphone in front of me and i'm staring at the wall behind that and i'm seeing in inverted commas those things in front of me but actually my brain is decoding all of those visual things that i'm the light that's going into my eyes at the back of my head and on the opposite side of my head to where those things are in the real world. But I don't see them back to front and upside down. I see them beautifully in front of me in all these colours. And I think when I see blue, because the wall in front of me is blue, I think that's blue. Why do I think it's blue? Because someone told me it was blue. But I have no idea if the blue that I'm seeing and experiencing in my brain is the same experience you have when you look at that wall. We only agree it's blue because we told each other that when you see that experience, it's blue. So we have no idea what consciousness is, how it works, or even, you know, my dog looks at me when he's hungry and, and sort of makes whining noises and knows that I'll feed him when, when he makes these noises or he brings me his dish. Now, he then looks very happy when I've fed him. Is he conscious in the same way? We have no idea. And uh, it's nice to end the programme on, on a, a good note to say, well, that's what science is all about. We try and answer these questions, but we start from a position of we have no idea and hopefully, mm. with some hard work, answer those questions as time goes on. I'll just call you the human Google search engine. You are rechristened, Dr. Chris Smith. To all the kids at Berkeley Primary School, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Uh, we'll choose another school in a month's time to Peter Ann and the kids there. Thanks so much, guys. Thanks for participating. Thanks very much indeed for brilliant questions as well. Thank you very much. We really appreciate the time. Chris, we'll chat to you again next week. Thanks um, so much. I'm looking for forward to it. Us. I'm going to go and have a cold shower after that. <laughs> Cheers. Trust is the strongest link in a resilient supply chain. Design your products with lifecycle visibility of components and bombs to avoid disruptions. Forecast to meet demand with robust planning and analytics tools. The partnership and infrastructure to empower global scale, efficiencies, and financial advantages. Trusted supply chain leader Avnet is your link to an efficient supply chain service.